Friends, let's open in our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. As we continue to read this letter, 1 Timothy chapter 3, our passage is, is one of my favorite passages in the pastoral epistles, and it really brings what Paul has been saying to a climax both in this letter and in the two successive letters that we're going to study in the pastoral epistles. So we're going to be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 14. Hear now God's word. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you tell us that um, to hear your words and to turn around and do them is to be like a wise man and a wise woman who builds our house upon the rock. That's the kind of people we want to be. That's the kind of church we want to be. We want to be wise builders on your word. And so I pray you would take this text and root it in our hearts and allow it to animate our lives. You can do that and you're eager to do that. And so we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, something I really appreciate about the Apostle Paul is in his writing, in his speaking, he's going to get to his point. He's going to drive home the climax, the center of what he's here to say. I don't know if you've ever had the experience where someone has invited you out to coffee out of the blue and you're not exactly sure why they did that or what they have to say to you if you're going to be confronted. Please don't do that to me. Um, We get insecure about that kind of stuff. Paul is going to get to the point. He starts the introduction. He talks about some things that are happening. And then he drives it home in this section. And he says, look, man, this is why I'm writing this letter. Verse 15. If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Paul is saying... Timothy, I'm sending you ahead to Ephesus where this church has been planted. I am uh, probably in Corinth at this point. I'm writing so that if I get delayed, like I miss my next ship or I get stoned to death, you know what to do. You understand how you are to pastor and lead and appoint elders and deacons in this church. You know how you're supposed to behave. And that really opens up one of the key themes in the pastoral epistles that we're going to see again and again and again, and the main theme of this sermon today, and that is this, that right believing animates right living. Right believing animates right living. What we know, what we think, what we understand, what we hold to in our doctrine, that changes the way we live our life. Right believing animates right living. Now that's in two places in our text. Here's why I get it. The first is in verse 15. He says, how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of truth. So there you have behavior that's based in truth. Again in verse 16, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. And then he goes on to to espouse a Christian creed of doctrine. He was manifested in the flesh, and so on. Behavior, truth, godliness, and creed, they go hand in hand. How we act, what we do with our lives, where we spend our money, who we have over to our house, how we talk to other people, all of that is animated by what we believe and understand to be true about our Bibles and about the gospel. 
Now, this isn't legalism, right? Paul is saying, I want you to understand how you're to behave in the household of God. What he is not saying is, I want you to understand how to behave to get into or to stay in the household of God. That's a totally different conversation. We get and stay in the household of God the same way my kids got and stay in my house. Not by works, so that no one can boast. Only and wholly by the grace of Christ. You don't start talking about getting in and staying in the household of God based on works and bring that junk to the New Testament because it will put your theology in its place. You only come by God's gracious work. But the gospel continues to tell us that when that happens, when we get transformed, when, when we become our truest selves as human beings and our hearts of stone are replaced by hearts of flesh, that does something to our lives. It changes us and it animates us and it propels us to live a life that's different than the life we came from. And Paul is saying with all earnestness to Timothy, I want you to understand these things, right? Believing animates right living. Now, he's already said this a number of times. He told Timothy this in chapter one. He said to hold faith and a good conscience. In other words, Timothy, I don't want you to be like false teachers who have pursued behavioral lusts and have made shipwreck of their doctrinal faith. People are doing that, and that's the connection between what we believe and what we do. The same could be said of women in chapter 2. Paul is saying, look, you can tell a woman's doctrine by how she dresses. Isn't that a crazy statement? I know what you believe based on what you dress. Are you dressing for the glory of the God who has saved you? Or are you dressing to direct glory to yourself? You know a person and their doctrine by how they dress. He says the same thing in chapter 3 with officers. He says, you need to pick men who are guarding the mystery of the faith, but here's how you can tell. What is their character like? Who do they have around their dinner table? What do they do with their money? How are they spoken of by outsiders? You tell me that, and I'll tell you what this person's doctrine is. Again and again and again, Paul is hammering home the same thing, right believing animates right living. We joke with each other and we say, you are what you eat. You know, if you eat certain things, you become that. So if we followed the old USDA uh, uh, pyramid for eating and we made half our diet grains, that would be a problem. We'd be walking around like a doughy ball of carbs, and that's just gross. Paul is saying the exact same true thing is true of your doctrine. You are what you believe. You are animated by the things that you hold fast in your mind and your heart. Now, he wants to go on from there, and he wants to tease this out with respect to who we are as a church body, a local expression of the universal church, and he wants to tease it out in the mystery of godliness. So we're going to look at both of those in turn. With respect to the church, Paul says in verse 15, I'm writing so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of truth. Now, when I've read this before or thought about this before, I used to think of the church as a pillar of truth, primarily in a defensive posture, right? The church has been entrusted with right doctrine, and it's up to us to grab a hold of this thing and guard this thing and preserve this thing. So local churches do the hard work of preserving and reciting and teaching and maintaining good doctrine, 
We keep copies of our creeds and confessions on file. We've got the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed and the creeds that we read. We guard the boundaries of our Bible. There's 66 books and no more. We catechize our children. We support seminaries and schools that produce Orthodox ministers. We are a pillar of truth that the entire world could crumble in postmodernism, and we will stand in defense. We're like a fire-safe deposit box of truth. The whole culture could burn around us, and you will be able to sift through that wreckage and find the local church as a safety box that you open up and find undamaged doctrine in. Now that's in part true. It is true that we defend right doctrine and we maintain right doctrine and we hold right doctrine over and against any other lie that comes into the church. That's true, but that is completely inadequate for what Paul is talking about here. Because when Paul says that we maintain this truth and that we behave this truth, his analogies are all visible entities. He says, look, church, local expression, you are a household of God. That's a visible thing to your neighbors and to a watching world. You are an assembly that has been called out of Ephesus. That's a very visible thing. You are like a pillar and a buttress. You're like one of the pillars on the State House of Columbia. Anytime you walk out on Main Street and look north or south, you can see these pillars. The things you believe are the same things that you behave, and that is visible to everybody who is watching. Don't just think about guarding doctrine as a private, personal thing that we guard within these four walls. Paul is saying the way you guard this doctrine is to perform it in front of people who are watching you. Now, this past weekend, myself and a couple other people from this church had a great experience to take a number of kids from the neighborhood, from the projects, to the USC Furman game. And we had a blast. This was a lot of these kids' first time to see williams Bryce Stadium, and, and we have fun together. And I began throughout the day to kind of learn the story of some of these kids, and one story really strikes me to the core, and that is a young man who I'm going to call Terrence, and he's a nine-year-old boy. And he has lived more years in his nine than I have lived myself. When Terrence was five, uh, his parents weren't living together, and he was waiting for his dad to come pick him up, but his dad was, was murdered in Atlanta. And the way Terrence found out about that was his grandmother called his mother, and his mother saw that Terrence was sitting on the stoop waiting for his dad, and she is not right in her mind. And the grandmother hears the mom pull the receiver back from her ear and say, Terrence, your daddy's not coming. He's dead. That's how a five-year-old boy learned about the death of his father. Two years later, Terrence was found on the streets of Atlanta. He wasn't wearing proper clothes in the wintertime. He hadn't been fed in a while, and he was taken from his mom. He has since been given back to her, and he lives literally five minutes from this building. He's right up the road now. I have no idea what he's doing this morning. Our Bibles are chock full of a description of a God who is a father to the fatherless, You read that in the Pentateuch, you read that in the Psalms, you read that in the prophets, that he avails himself and makes himself ready to the widow, to the orphan, to the foreigner. He is a father to the fatherless. That's a doctrine that we cherish and hold and preach and proclaim in this church. How's a boy like Terrence ever going to hear that? How's he ever going to know that that is the God we serve? 
Does he need to catch a ride to the Taps building and knock on our door and ask for a copy of our doctrinal distinctives to know that truth? If the church does not put this doctrine on and perform it in front of other people, how will they know? If a tree falls in the woods and nobody's there to hear it, does it make a noise? If a doctrine is preserved in a church and no one is there to perform it, how will anybody know it? We only know the doctrines that we see performed around us in the church. We are the church of the living God, but I pray and I plead that we are the living church of the living God. We don't just believe doctrine, we perform it. We don't just know truth, we show it. We don't just recite these creeds, we put them on and we wear them around our neighborhoods. Paul is pleading with Timothy and with us, You have a visible role with respect to doctrine. You're a pillar of truth and anybody anywhere should be able to look up and see that local expression of a pillar and know that we serve a father of the fatherless. That's what we do as a church with respect to our doctrine. Paul wants to continue this theme. He wants to look in verse 16 at another angle of what it means to animate doctrine. He wants to explore this mystery of godliness. He says in verse 16, great indeed is the mystery of godliness. And myself and other people see a resemblance between what he's writing there and what Paul himself had heard in the city of Ephesus years ago. And we talked about how Paul planted this church in Acts 19 in the city of Ephesus. It's a dramatic story of God's work. He comes to this city. He sees many conversions. People who are, who are converting to Christ begin to throw off idolatry. There's a huge um, temple cult surrounded by one of the seven wonders of the world, the temple of Artemis, and people served and worshipped her. But as people come to faith in Christ, they begin to throw that off and serve the one true living God. Now, when those who made their money from people worshiping Artemis saw that, they were disturbed. Men like Demetrius, who was a silversmith, who understood if people keep converting, we're going to lose our profession. So what does he do? He rallies the city together. They create a mob. They rush into the center of the city of Ephesus. And for two hours, they scream as a mob at the top of their lungs, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. You got to believe that the Apostle Paul, years later, out of that city, sitting at his desk, writing this letter, is remembering that scene very well, because that might have been Paul's last scene. If that mob would have gotten a hold of Paul, he would have been dead, and we wouldn't have this letter. But as it stands, he wasn't. And you've got to imagine he's writing this letter with a twinkle in his eye, and he says, that's not what's great. Who Artemis is and what she can offer and the blessings she says that she can give you, that's not what's great. What's great is this mystery of godliness. That's what's great. That's what you you give your life for. That's what you pursue to the ends of the world. That's what you understand is happening in a believer. It is this mystery of godliness. Great indeed is not Artemis, but this mystery. Good theology is subversive. Good theology takes a hold of notions and ideologies and lies that we hear from other places, including our own heart. 
grabs a hold of those things and it cuts them off at the knees and says, you thought the world was one way, but I tell you this, the world is this way. That's good theologizing. That's what Paul's doing. What does he mean by the mystery of godliness? He means simply this, that this mystery now revealed is that the entire foundation of the life of a believer is now found in Jesus Christ. That who we are, what we believe, what we understand, how we're animated in this life is all now found in the person and the work of Jesus. What's the relationship between the mystery of godliness and all these facts that he lists about what Jesus did 2,000 years ago? The relationship is this, that that is the meat of who we are. That creates the foundation of our very existence, that Jesus was incarnate in the flesh, that he did secure our redemption by his death and resurrection. We are now living and breathing new life entities because of the gospel, and that animates who we are and what we do. This creed is not just a reminder of some things that happened. This creed becomes our lifeblood. This is our oxygen. This is what we believe and what we do. This is everything to us. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we were in our officer training, elders and deacons, and we had a clinical counselor come to speak to us, Ula Dahlin, and she, as she began to talk about counseling and discipleship and what it looks like to walk with a sufferer, she began by, by this analogy of what it looks like to be a friend of somebody who's, who's suffering. And she says, we could either be a travel agent or a trail guide. You know, a travel agent is a person who can give you a wonderful picture and description of where you're going. They can inspire your imagination. They can show you pictures. They can describe what you're going to do. But there's only one problem with a travel agent. That person has never actually been there themselves, right? They don't honestly know what they're talking about. They're a stay-at-home mom on the phone with you. They've never been on a plane, and they're telling you about the Maldives. That's not what a trail guide is. A trail guide is a person who has walked that trail before. They know every crevice and every rock and every turn in the path, and they have bumps and bruises to show it because they've been there. Now, the import for that analogy and counseling is obvious. You don't sit with a person like a travel agent and tell them to go places and do things in their faith that they've never done themselves. You don't do that. You're a trail guide as a fellow Christian. But the same analogy rings true for theologizing. If you are a person who reads your Bible, you are in some respect a theologian. And the stuff of theologizing is not the glossy brochure of what God might be like or what this world might be like or what my Christian life might be like. Theologizing is the nitty gritty stuff of rolling up your sleeves and hitting the trail and getting dirty in this world, performing what God is calling us to perform. As disciples, we are not just storytellers, says Kevin Van Hooser. We are story dwellers. We don't just talk about this story. We don't just believe this story in theory. We dwell in the very same story we are talking about. Look at this creed. We don't just tell the story that Jesus was manifest in the flesh. We live that story every day. 
that God himself did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself in the very likeness of man, took on flesh, took on sin, and now becomes a high priest who understands every trial and temptation we experience. When we go to Jesus, we go with this creed, performing it before him, because we have access to a God who has come to us first. We approach him because he first approached us in the incarnation. We don't just tell the story of Jesus' vindication. We don't just talk in general terms about his death and resurrection. We live that same story. That the Jesus we trust in has defeated sin and death. And the more we dwell in that true story, the more the things that plague us and plague our thoughts, our sin, our guilt, our shame, our fear, begins to dissolve before the cross because it is a living reality for the believer. We don't just tell the story about Jesus being seen by angels. This interesting anecdote to our creed that Jesus made it to heaven and people saw him. We live this reality. That Jesus ascended, that he was celebrated and worshipped by celestial heavenly bodies that are too marvelous for us to comprehend. That he sat down at the right hand of the Father, completing all of this for us. And when we walk into this story of a Jesus who is seen by angels, we pray and we worship and we sing to a king who is worthy of our worship. He created this world. He sustains this world. He is going to inherit this world. There's no passive way to talk about a creed that puts a king on a throne above the entire cosmos and not to be swept up into that reality by the way we live our lives. We are not storytellers alone. We are story dwellers. We live in this same story. Well, Jesus himself, when he did ministry on this earth, talked about this very same thing, that if we believe rightly, we will live rightly. But he also showed us that the inverse was true in his same Sermon on the Mount. He tells us that right believing animates right living. Remember he said, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Jesus is saying, if you hear what I'm saying and you believe it, you got good doctrine in your mind, in your heart, you're going to do it. You're going to perform it. You're going to obey it. And that's like a wise person who builds their house upon a rock. But watch this. Jesus also said that the reverse is true, that the inverse happens. Right living informs right believing. In that same sermon, he says, let your light shine before others that they might see your good deeds and glorify their father who is in heaven. Do you see what just happened there? People walked by and they saw a good deed. They saw a a doctrine and a creed performed. They witnessed something. And they walked away from that exchange with a whole bunch of theology. They now know that there's a God in heaven who's a father who is due all their glory. Church, we are the household of God. We are a church of the living God. We are a pillar and a buttress of truth. We stand in this city as a visible performance of what God has called us to do. This is our task, to take this Bible and these doctrines and to animate them before a watching world. And we will do this by his grace. Let's pray together. 
Lord, I pray that you would forgive us for being storytellers alone. I pray that you would forgive us for letting doctrine and creed and scripture memory verses die in our ears and our hearts and our mouths and never make it to our hands and our feet. You've called us to be animated by the truth of your word and the power of your spirit and the kingdom that you are bringing on earth as it is in heaven. And we will do that as you empower us. Lead us, we plead in Christ's name. Amen.